Pastor Adam Mabry, who's a, a, one of our Every Nation pastors, heard we were having a birthday celebration, and he's crashed it, and that's why he's here today. No, I'm just kidding. He's actually in town. Uh, he did a leadership conference for another church, and so we said, we got to have you come and preach to us and share the word with us, and he did an amazing job in the last two services. I know you're going to be blessed. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Pastor Dr. Adam Mabry. Um, he, is, uh, he has a doctor of ministry degree from Gordon-Conwell. He's working on his PhD right now, and so I guess I need to get one, too, because Adam has one, so anyway. Now my wife will kill me. Um, he planted two churches in Scotland before he and his wife felt God to call them to move back to the United States, where he decided he would plant a church in the easiest place in the country to plant churches, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, that's a joke. It's the hardest place in the United States to plant a church. And so he planted a church right in between Cambridge, Cambridge and Harvard University, the Harvard University, and today they have a little over 2,000 people, and that is a miracle in that region of the world. Amen. How about a praise to God for that? Um, reaching college students in that region of the world is, is, is what needs to happen, amen, and making a difference in that region of the world, and, and so that's a testament to the grace of God, but also to Pastor Adam's uh, heart for ministry and the call of God to, on, on his life, and uh, he's here to share the word with us this morning, and so I know you're going to be blessed and encouraged, and over the last few years, got to know him. I'm glad to call him a friend, and so you help me, would you help me welcome to the stage Dr. Pastor Adam Mabry. Thanks, Billy. Good morning. All right. You guys are a little bit more up and awake than the previous services, so that's, uh, that makes sense um, since, uh, since it's later in the day. My name is Adam, and I am, in fact, the pastor of Aletheia Church in Cambridge, Mass., and I'm glad to be here with you. If you're, if you've never, anybody ever been to New England, ever been to Massachusetts? If you're wondering what it's like, it's just imagine the opposite of this, and that's it. Um, that's what it's like. Um, actually, right now, it's one of the, the few times it's really beautiful in, in, in uh, New England. It's autumn. We've got all these different leaves changing color. So um, if, if we made lays for our guests, it would just be a bunch of crunchy, different colored orange and yellow leaves. Um, but, uh, but that's what it would look like. Um, before I get started, uh, let me introduce the people I didn't bring with me to you. Um, this is my family. They said, Dad, can we come uh, to Hawaii with you? And I was like, of course not. Um, <laughs> no, this, this is my wife. Uh, she and I have a trip. She would have joined me, but she and I have a trip next week. And so I've actually brought my mom with me. If you want to say hi to, yes, this lovely lady. She's, she's pretty great. I'm a fan. Um, so this, uh, this lovely lady on the left here is my wife, Hope. We met in high school. I was 15. She was 16. We were in math class together. She was paying attention to the teacher. She got an A. I was paying attention to her. I got a C. Um, but joke's on her. I ended up marrying her anyway. Um, and, uh, and these are our kids. This is Alana, Nora, Cole, and Wyatt, and they are a blast. They're a lot of fun. They are a huge challenge, but they're also an amazing, amazing reward, um, and, uh, and they bid you greetings, and uh, next time I, I come, I would love to be able to, to bring them uh, as well. Now, you guys are in, uh, in a teaching series that we'll jump into in a second, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Samuel, but before we get there, can I also wish you a very, very happy birthday? Um, 28 years, as a guy who's devoted his whole adult life to planting new churches or planting a church that plants new churches... Can I just say, well done. Well done. Yeah. Some of you, 
Some of you in this service probably, you know, maybe were, were around, like in those early years, maybe at the first service, and you're like, I'm just glad we don't have to fold chairs anymore. Praise the Lord. Um, and some of you, maybe you're here for the very first time today, and you're just, you're, maybe you're new to the area, or you're just checking out Christianity. And, and I, want, I want to just say, th- there is a special grace on a church that is planted within your generation and then plants other churches. And there's a special grace on this one. So, man, just to give honor to Pastor Norman and the team here, Pastor Billy, your leaders, uh, it, it is an amazing and remarkable thing as a guy who cares so deeply about planting churches that change our nation and change the world to be standing in what is a miracle. Now, it might not feel like a miracle to you, but for a church to be birthed, and for it to grow and to be as fruitful as this one is, you need to know as a nerd who studies stuff like this, you are in a church that is 1% of 1%. Churches like this, for every church like this, there's 1,000 churches of 200 people or under that are gonna close very shortly in the United States of America. Now that's not great, but that's also why this church was planted, to help more and more people find and follow Christ, to make more and more disciples. And I, I, I wanna tell you, um, I said this in the earlier services and just as I was preparing uh, for you today, felt from the Holy Spirit very much to tell you that this, your, your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. Uh, your best, my, my name is not Jim LaFoon, I am not a prophet, but he is my pastor and it rubs off, okay? Your best days are ahead of you. I, I know some of you, you maybe are, are even here and you're like, man, but I remember this really cool thing that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, and oh, I really miss this one move of God or that season when God was doing these things in our church. And, and I want to encourage you you have been faithful with little. I, I get this feels like a lot, but to the God of the universe, it's not. And as you've been faithful with little, you will in fact be ruler over much. There are leaders in this room. There are future pastors and elders and church planters and campus missionaries and world missionaries right here. And so for those of you that are, that are part of this church, you give, you pray, you serve, thank you. Thank you. As a guy who has nothing to gain from you being awesome, I live on the other side of the world. I'm gonna get on a plane tomorrow. Thank you. This is amazing, and it's such a treasure to be in spiritual family with a church like this one. So, having said that, let's turn to the scriptures today. Second Samuel chapter 6, you have been in this teaching series on the life of David. I really like David. I can relate to David a lot in many, many ways, especially in some of his more difficult moments. Last week, uh, Pastor Billy preached to you about how David was formed and forged through the experience of persecution, and today we're going to carry that on to discuss how David was made and formed in the fear of the Lord. Let's read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll read 15 verses, I'll pray, and then God's gonna speak to us through his word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. 
And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And all, I'm sorry, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. We have a tradition in my church that after the Bible is read, the person who reads it says, this is the word of the Lord, and the people say, thanks be to God. You want to try it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, please help us today. God, we do not need interesting information about this text. We need, we need a transformational experience with you. So Holy Spirit, if, if you don't come, these are just letters on a page. But Lord, if you would be pleased to come and speak through my words, Lord, and unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. God, we, we could have an encounter with you and that's what we desire, God. Please meet with us. Forgive us of all of the sin and, and shame and darkness that disqualifies us from even asking. And come by your presence and change us. Work in us deeply the fear of the Lord that we may have wisdom and that we may know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, as I mentioned, I can very much relate to King David. Not because I'm a king yet, but, <laughs> gotta have goals, right? But because I, I get what it's like to be in charge of people. I get what it's like to have people depending on me. I have some of that. And I also get what it's like to want to do good things for God really passionately, but not always do them the right way. David, David has... An, an emotional journey in his life. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? John Calvin said that every conceivable human emotion is contained and to be prayed through by the book of Psalms. And David wrote most of them, and, and I love them. Because in one Psalm, David's like, Lord, you're amazing. I love you. And then in the next Psalm, he's like, where have you gone? In the next Psalm, he's praying for God to kill his enemy's children. So he has emotions, is what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And so I can relate to that because there are some days where I'm like, this ministry thing is awesome. I love being a pastor. And then there are some days where I'm like downloading Indeed to my phone to figure out how to be an IT guy. That's what I'm doing, right? So I get it. I understand what David, um, as you can tell, no bites yet. But anyway, uh, just playing, just playing. Um, I, get, I get what it's like to feel passionate about God and want to do great things for God and not always to do that the right way. David wanted something very praiseworthy. Now, what does that mean? You hear, okay, David wanted to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. Okay, he liked furniture. What is that about? Okay, here in the new covenant, which is what uh, we're in as followers of Christ, we experience the presence of God together because of the work of Jesus and that he has poured out the Holy Spirit into the church. So now, we don't need to go to a temple we're the temple. 
And we don't technically even go to a church. We are the church. This is just a building. Because the Holy Spirit, God's presence, is meant to now be contained within you and us. But that's a result of the work of Jesus. Back then, the presence of God was located, physically located, on the earth in and upon this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box covered in gold with the two tablets of the testimony and Aaron's budded staff and all kinds of, you know, some manna and some stuff. It was, it was a revered object, and God chose to dwell there. And so wherever this thing was, there too was God's presence. And so what David wanted was to be present with God. Now, this was really important because at this point in the story of David, it is, it's finally going well, Okay. David started off pretty good, you know, slew Goliath, that was awesome, and then a long season of it not being awesome. His boss tried to kill him multiple times. He lived out in the woods in a cave with a bunch of dudes. Ugh. You ever been to a dude's dorm? Gross. But finally, he was anointed king and things started to go well. And so he, he um, conquered Jerusalem, which said could never be done. They renamed the city after him, called the city of David. And so for his next move, he wanted to bring the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back into the, the capital city of the people of God. That's a good thing to want to do. It had been almost a century that the Ark had been away, had been in Philistine territory, and then uh, was sent back and just kind of hanging out there outside of the city. So David decided, you know what I want to do? I want to bring... God's presence back into the city. That's good. If you were to say to your small group leader or to one of the pastors here, hey, I want more of God's presence in my life, we'd go, great, that's great, and we'd love to help you with that. But to want God's presence without appropriate reverence is not to want God's presence. To, to think that we can be with God on our terms and not his terms is to commit blasphemy. So we can want a good thing, but going about it in a not good way makes it not good. And that's really what we see going on here with David. What we're going to find out is that this thing that we describe as the fear of the Lord is different than we think it is and way more important than we imagine it to be different than we think it is, and way more important than we imagine it to be. So let's take that sentence, we'll crack it in half. How is it the case that the fear of the Lord is different than we think it is? Because some of you are here and you like being here precisely because all that hellfire, brimstone, fear stuff is not part of the worship experience. I don't think, I don't see any brimstone here. And you walk into a building like this and, and, a, and a church like this and you hear an awesome band, which they were, great job guys, and, and this building is great, and, and, and you come in, and it feels very welcoming, and you just kind of come in, and, and, and you sing, and that's great. I, I do church like this, too. Our, our room and our band, it all feels very similar if you were to come to ours. But the danger of doing church like this is that we can be lulled into a sense that this is normal and common, and that we actually deserve to be in God's presence. That is not true. That is not true. The fear of the Lord is different than you think it is. It's not just, it's not terror, it's not hellfire and brimstone. It's different than you think it is in many ways, the first of which is that it is about obedience and not enthusiasm. Not enough of you were shocked and awed by that. Let me say it again. It's about obedience and not enthusiasm. Look, 
I love, I love doing church like this, okay? I, I'm an old soul, but I, I, like, I like being in uh, the room. I want, it, I want the music to be loud. I need the kick drum and the bass guitar peaked at 65 hertz and turned up slightly too loud so that I can feel it in my liver. Like that's, I like this, okay? But enthusiasm is just enthusiasm. God never commands us to be merely enthusiastic. He commands us to obey him. How many of you read that book, The Five Love Languages? You know that book, right? And some of you are like, oh, I know my love language. It's words, affirmation. Mine is gifts, and mine's quality time, and that's great. And you can all talk, oh, it's very nice. You know what God's love language is? Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So my love for God is in direct proportion to my obedience to God. Now, some of you were like, but I'm really passionate about God. Listen, that's great. It really is. Be passionate about God. But if your obedience to God is determined by your passion for God, then as soon as you're having a down day, you'll walk away. That is not the fear of the Lord. That's just your feelings. And let me tell you what your feelings are really good at telling you, how you feel. That's it. Pretty much it. They're terrible at telling you truth. They're telling, terrible at telling you many other things. They're good at telling you how you feel. But in our age that exalts empathy and exalts emotion and exalts the interpersonal experience, if we think that when we feel worshipy, then we are fearing the Lord, we're never going to get this right. We're never going to get this right. The fear of the Lord is different than we think it is. It's about obedience and not just enthusiasm. David was very enthusiastic. He wanted to do a good thing. And he was enthusiastic about it. We read in the Bible, like they had this whole worship. I mean, imagine like a parade, you know, the bands out there. And then we get a list of all the instruments. There are harps and lyres and cymbals and castanets. I like that one. Those are Spanish. And so he gets his two right-hand dudes, Uza, Ahio, in case any of you are looking for baby names. <laughs> That's a joke, unless one of you is actually named Uza and Ahio, in which case I'm terribly sorry. Um, <laughs> These sons of Abinadab, he, he grabs them and he says, guys, I want you to go sort out how we're going to transport this box. And they're like, well, okay, well, we got to get the box a nice ride, you know. If you had the Ark of the Covenant, you wouldn't put it in the back of your, like, 1983 Toyota, right? You'd, you'd want to put it in a nice car. You'd want to, you know, you'd want to clean things up. You'd, you'd go to the dealership. You'd, you'd rent something. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, he was trying to do it nicely. And so, you know, got a new ox, a nice cart, I don't know, some spinners on the wheels, whatever. I'm not sure. But he wanted to do it well. Here's the only problem. He didn't read his Bible. Because if he had, he would have read in the book of Exodus and later in the book of Deuteronomy that the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported in a very specific way. Only ever to be approached by the Levites who had purified themselves and were wearing the right things. Definitely never to be put on a cart carried by an ox. It literally says, don't do that in the book of Exodus. So David wanted to do a good thing. He was enthusiastic about it, but he did it in the wrong way. The fear of the Lord is about obedience, not enthusiasm. Second of all, the fear of the Lord is about honor, not terror. And I can hear what some of you are saying. But Pastor, look, God sees my heart. God knows my heart. So, you know, if I do it the wrong way, he knows my heart. Yeah, that doesn't prove what you think it does. That's actually the problem. God sees your heart. That's not a mark in your favor. That's a mark against you. God sees your heart clearer than you do. 
Any of you ever lied to yourself? No one has lied to me and deceived me more than me. I am terrible at telling myself truth. But Jesus, he gave us a marker to, to see what was in our heart. He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which sort of can be extrapolated out to what I say, what I do, how I act, how I spend, how I treat others is a far better indicator of what's going on in my heart than how I say I feel. And David, though he seemed enthusiastic, didn't seem to have a heart for God's word. And so this whole thing was about honor, not about terror. So Uzzah and Ahio, these guys go. And they pick up the ark, they put it on the cart. I'm surprised that God didn't kill them then. Obviously, God was being gracious, okay? Like, he was like, okay, all right, I'll maybe overlook this or whatever. I don't know what he was thinking. But, you know, the ark gets pulled out by the cart, drums, castanets, all that good stuff. Everybody's dancing. It's happy. But, you know, apparently the roads in Jerusalem were a lot like the roads in Boston. There was a pothole. And the ark tilted. So Uzzah, being a good dude, didn't want the ark to fall over. So he put his hand out and stopped it. And immediately he was struck dead. Now you look at that and you go, that doesn't seem fair. No, it wasn't fair to Uzzah. Because Uzzah didn't know. But David should have known. The fear of the Lord is about honoring God, not being terrified of him. Something I've learned by being a pastor is that by being a male senior pastor... I am therefore the receptacle of everyone's father issues and authority issues. Think about that the next time you send Pastor Billy an email, by the way, but he didn't pay me to say that. So I, I get that for some of you, this idea that God is a God to be honored and feared could feel really, really hard to you because some of you, you didn't have a great dad. And maybe some of you have been hurt by, by men like me. I understand that. I get that that's real, and I'm not at all trying to make light of that. But my experience in my past cannot be determinative of how I expect God to be. It has to flow in the opposite direction, okay? I, I can't let what happened to me in the past be more authoritative about my opinions of God than what God says about God, okay? This is not about terrorizing you. And when Uzzah died, it wasn't about terrorizing David, but God had to communicate to this man who was going to lead millions of his people, if you don't take my holiness seriously, this is not going to go well for you. May I suggest to you, family, that your enthusiasm about God, though great, if it is not accompanied by an honor and reverence for God, your enthusiasm is just enthusiasm. And frankly, if we're all honest, most of you get more enthusiastic about other things than you do here on Sunday morning. Okay? Like, what was the last game you watched? Very few of you are like, yay. Okay, right? Let's be honest. How many of you shouted at your TV this weekend? Right? This weekend. You're like, does last weekend count? Yeah, last weekend counts. Yeah, right? We get real worshipy when millionaires in stretchy pants throw a ball in a very specific way, don't we? That's called football. I don't know if any of you, that's a time release joke. Get your neighbor to explain it. Enthusiasm is good. I want you to be enthusiastic, but God cares more about obedience. And what does fear of the Lord mean? Fear has kind of two angles, two perspectives, two valences to it. The first way this word fear gets translated is like, wow. Just where you're just, God, you're, you're amazing. You're amazing. And we've had that experience. Have you had that experience? It's amazing. 
But there's the second side to it, which is, whoa. Whoa. God, you are terrifyingly holy. And they have to go together. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. You can believe all of this all at once. And when we, when we kind of make a God a cartoon character of himself with all the hellfire and brimstone stuff, we just make him a cartoon character. And this is no better than being enthusiastic about a God who overlooks everything. Both are wrong. The fear of the Lord is different than we think it is. It's about obedience and not enthusiasm, about honor, not terror. And here's one that you're going to want to throw a tomato at me for. It's about relationship and rules. Now look, I know some of you are like, wait a minute. I was told that following Jesus is about relationship and not rules. Yes, here's what that means. In order to come into a relationship with Jesus, you say yes to the relationship and then you obey. It, you can't obey your way into it. Does that make sense? He invites you into relationship by grace. You don't do all the right things, and then he accepts you. He accepts you, and then your behavior changes. That's what is meant by that. But once you're in relationship with Jesus, there are rules. You say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound fair. Okay, everybody who's married right now, look at your spouse right now. And if you're not married, just imagine the last wedding you went to. Do you remember the minute when pastor like me said, do you huh, take huh, to be your huh? Yeah, I do. Do you huh, huh? I do. Okay. Repeat after me. I hmm, solemnly hmm, and I'm going to huh. Okay. You? Yes. What you were doing right there, you were signing a contract, my friend. You were laying out the rules of your relationship. Now, I've been married 19 and a half years. It's awesome. Uh, 18 and a half years. 18 and a half years. <laughs> um, If I came home and printed out a copy of our vows and marked them up with red ink and slid them to my wife and was like, I've got some edits. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, how would that go for me? <laughs> In the last service, there was a guy right there who just went, ah, that's why he didn't even say anything. He just made a sound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me and my couch would have a close personal relationship, but me and my wife would not. Are you with me? The fear of the Lord is about relationship and rules, that, that if David was going to be in relationship with God, it could not be on his own terms. You listen to me. I have heard so many people say, me and God have a deal. We have an understanding. He knows where my heart is. I can do things my own way. That is a lie that will send you to hell and everyone who believes it with you. You don't have a deal with God. You don't get to forge one. You and your attorney didn't sit down on one side of a mahogany table with God and his attorney and you negotiated a deal. That is not how this works. God in his mercy has given us a deal. And when we accept it, we accept it and don't get to edit it. That's, that's the deal. And so David had to remember, my son, I love you, but you will obey me because I am God and you are not. So that when, when we come into relationship with him, he says, my daughter, my son, I love you, and I have mercy for you, but you will obey me. You must obey me, because I am God and you are not. And when you live as if you are, not only do you endanger your own soul, but you endanger everyone else who watches you, which is the second side of our sentence we cracked in half. The fear of the Lord is different than we think it is, and it's more important than we imagine, first of all, for the people we lead. 
Uzzah and Ahio, these guys, the real human men who had like parents and maybe siblings and maybe wives. I don't know. We don't know a lot about them. But because of David's foolishness and his presumption, even though his heart was in the right place, one of them died and the other one lost a brother. There are real world consequences to not taking God's holiness seriously and not fearing him. When I don't take God's holiness seriously, I say to my children, my church, the men I disciple, that you don't have to either. And there comes a point after which God says, we're done now. You can't live this way anymore. The fear of the Lord is about more than we think it is. It, it, it has to be for the sake of those that we lead. Second of all, it has, it has to impact the way we understand God's presence. The fear of the Lord is different and about more, more important than we've imagined, particularly if we want to experience God's presence and God's blessing. David thought he could be enthusiastic, sing, ignore God's rules, and get God's presence. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You don't get to be enthusiastic about God, sing songs, live how you want, and get his grace, get his blessing, get his provision, and get that life you always wanted. That is a lie. That is the only heresy Americans have ever invented for ourselves. It is called the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It is completely false, and it sells you this lie, that if you just do a little bit of the obedience, you get all the blessings. It's complete nonsense. And it's not nonsense because it's not true. It's just not, tr it's not all the way true. It's got a little bit of truth in it. Like, yeah, do what God says, and God likes that. He, Yeah, that's true. It's just, you don't get to pick the parts. Neither do I. Trust me, I wish that I did. I live in Boston. Boston is the apotheosis of my own flesh, okay? We're cranky, we're in a hurry, and that's it. And there, God sent me into the place where I'm like, these are my people, and he's like, yes, and you can't live like them. I'm like, okay. Be holy and patient. If any of you ever have the displeasure of driving in Boston, it is the most sanctifying experience. <laughs> no, you just lay your hand on the horn and you say, friend, <laughs> bless you, brother. Bless you. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, dr I, I drive now because I used to bike to be real green, but I almost died 35 times. <laughs> and then got yelled at by the people in Boston. Because, anyway. Sorry, that was just for me. That was a little cathartic. I needed that. Thank you. <laughs> the holiness of God is different than we think that it is. It's about more than we've imagined for the sake of those we lead, for the sake of our experience of his presence, and for our joy in God. Some Christians say you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to enjoy God and to get his blessing because that's selfish. You just be there to serve God out of duty. And others would say, God just always only ever wants to bless you and make your, you know, make your life great. Neither of them are right. Because the fact of the matter is, my joy in God is my blessing. The more and more I enjoy him, the more and more he is honored, the more and more I am given joy because I am locating my joy in the thing that is meant to give me joy. I'm not locating it in anything else. But if I'm going to enjoy God, if I'm going to get the blessings of Obed-Edom, then I've got to take God seriously. And finally, finally, when David did, when David did, things changed for him. So he's, you know, dancing, marching, and Uzzah dies. 
And so he goes, oh, okay, party over. Knock, knock, knock. Are you Obed-Edom? Yes. Can I interest you in a gently used Ark of the Covenant to park in your garage? Comes with death, you know? And so David pieces out, goes back to his palace. But three months later, he gets a report. And Obed-Edom is crushing everything. Marriage is great. Kids are great. Life is great. Bank account's great. Everything's great. David is confused because he's angry at God for what God did. But he desires God for who God is. And this leads him to repent. Some of you are angry at God for what he allowed to happen in your life because you think you deserve differently. But you're here because you desire him. And hopefully by the end of our time together, you too will make the choice David did to repent. But he comes and he he, he gets the ark again. But this time, the text tells us that they carried the ark, which means David went back and he read his Bible. And, and then he adds something. See, the, the book of Leviticus didn't, didn't command David to make this many sacrifices, but he said, you know what? Every sixth step on the seventh, I'm sacrificing. There's a whole bunch of meaning in there I don't have time to unpack. The number seven is a number of completion and holiness and perfection. I'm going to do a full sacrifice. I'm going to honor God. And the way he dresses is totally different. We don't get harps and lyres and no more castanets. Nor is David regaled in his royal outfit. He's wearing a linen ephod. You know what a linen ephod is? It's your britches. It's your underwear. Except linen, so it's itchy. Why would David take off his crown, his robes, his shoes, his tunic, his sword, his belt, and only wear an ephod. I'll tell you why. The priests had two outfits, ancient Israelite priests. One outfit was when they were representing God to the people, and it was very, very fancy, okay? Bells, pomegranates, colors, a hat, everything. It was very fancy. But when they were representing the people to God, it was linen. And so David, to humble himself, he, he says, look, I got nothing to add here. I come to you, God. I'm not a king. I'm not fancy. I don't deserve to be here. I'm just grateful I am. David postures himself as a priest king who is representing his people to God in a way filled now with humility and obedience. And what happens? The presence of God comes into the city of Jerusalem filled with shouts of joy, and David's reign is blessed now, if we ended the sermon here, here's, here's how that would go. We would say, okay, so therefore, be like David. Let's pray. Here's the thing. By the time you hit the parking lot, you'd already probably mess up. And some of you, you're extra holy, so tomorrow. Because you're going to realize, like, I can't... If my experience of God's presence is dependent upon my ability to constantly fear and honor the Lord, then I am hopeless... I'm out. I got nothing. I can't do that consistently. And if you're there, then you're right. You can't. But we're Christians. Remember earlier I told you that we're not in that old covenant anymore because we have a truer and better David. We have a king that is better than the king of Jerusalem or the king of ancient Israel. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We have a truer and better priest who also was stripped down to nothing but his shame and indignity In our case, it wasn't Uzzah that died. It was Jesus. 
and the, and the holiness of God wasn't broken out against us. In fact, it was poured out upon Jesus. God's fierce judgment and wrath at our disobedience and sin was poured out on the one person who didn't in the whole world deserve it so that by the love and by the representation and by the priestly, kingly work of that Jesus, we who deserve to die just like Uzzah now get to be in God's presence forever and ever and in a way that we can no longer mess up. Which means we can begin to take seriously the fear of the Lord and we can be forgiven when we forget. Now we can be brought into full and right relationship with God and be given mercy because we can't always do that perfectly. Some of you in here, you're just kicking the tires of Christianity and you're here and you're, you're wondering, what, what do I have to do? You just have to start by admitting there's nothing you can do. The singular qualification for your relationship with Jesus is your admission that you don't deserve one. If you're willing to do that, everything else comes. Today, some of you, you're, you're, you're driven here by that. You're, you've been mad at God. I don't like what God did in my life. I don't like what God did to my brother. I don't like what God's done to me. Okay. But you're confused because you think you deserve better. You don't. And I don't. And David didn't but we have been given better by grace because God is good, not because you're good. And if you would say to God, God, okay, I get it and I'm sorry. And you show up in the linen ephod of your own humility, then God will move right into Jerusalem with you. Some of you, you're here and you're, you are followers of Jesus, but frankly, you've made your walk with Jesus real normal. You know, go to church on Sunday, do what I want on Monday, go to my small group on Tuesday, forget what I learned on Tuesday. I get it. Remember I just showed you a picture of my family? I'm busy, y'all. I got like four jobs and four kids and they have like a sport and a musical instrument each and then they have school and then they have, I had two teenagers and now they have like special people. I am busy. Because now I have to kill both of those teenage boys but like make it look like I didn't, it's very complicated. We're all very busy, I get it, that's a joke, I'm not, if I were gonna do that, I wouldn't I'd live stream it. <laughs> I get that we're busy and we come into church and church just goes in the to-do list. And just because this all becomes like just another thing that you do and I, I, want, I wanna say to you, okay, I get, why you, I get why you feel that way but it's not. So let, let, now that your heart is in the right place, let also your feet and your hands and your wallet and your mind and your heart, your body be in the right place. Let our enthusiasm be accompanied with obedience that we might walk in the fear of the Lord and be blessed. My friends, if you embrace this idea, there will be, your biggest problem is gonna be seating. Where we put all these people that are getting their lives changed. Your biggest problem is gonna be like, I, I gotta get a bigger living room because my small group is exploding because you know what God blesses? Obedience. He does. And obedience is a direct result of reverent wow and woe. Lord, help us. Help me. Help us. Lord, forgive us for the ways we've been disobedient. Forgive us for the ways we have made holy or made common your holiness. Where we have not only not feared you, we have openly dishonored you and disrespected you. God, forgive us. We need your mercy and grace. 
And Lord, as you pour out your grace, would you bless and protect and raise this people up? God, I thank you. This church's best days are not behind. They are ahead. And they will continue to grow and do well as they continue to honor you. So Holy Spirit, enable that by your presence and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.